1 Corinthians 3, verses 1 to 4. But I, brethren, could not address you as spiritual men, but as men of the flesh, as babes in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even yet you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving like ordinary men? For when one says, I belong to Paul, and another, I belong to Apollos, are you not merely men? This is one of those texts that in one truth is both a hope and a warning. I think it's intended to be a tender-hearted hope for stumblers and bumblers and imperfect Christians striving toward maturity. And I think it's intended to be a warning towards casual drifters in the Christian life. The main concern of Paul, as we've seen again and again in these chapters, is to knock the props out from under pride. You saw how this text ended, didn't you? We were back where we began in chapter 1. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. In other words, there's jealousy, there's strife. And what is the foundation of jealousy and strife? Self-assertion, pride, wanting your own little turf to be thought better than somebody else's, getting the praise of men. So Paul's business again and again in these verses has been to somehow dismantle the foundations of pride in the Corinthian community. And wisdom, human wisdom that people have been boasting in especially, has really taken it on the chin. And so we saw last week that in order to avoid a misunderstanding, namely that all wisdom is written off, Paul says in verse 6 of chapter 2, I do impart a wisdom, though it is not a wisdom of this age, it's a wisdom of God. And then he says down in verse 15 of chapter 2 that only spiritual people can grasp this wisdom, that can, they can assess it rightly, they can judge all the things that are presented in this wisdom. Natural people can't. Natural people are the people who don't have the Holy Spirit and can't make these kinds of judgments. They think everything spiritual is foolishness. And spiritual people, in verse 15, are the mature people, in verse 6. And so they can assess all things properly and embrace spiritual truth because they assess it rightly. Now, that's the way we're left at the end of last week. And it is a vastly oversimplified description of human Life, isn't it? And Paul knows that it is. And so he can't leave us there with human beings divided up into two simple categories. Namely, natural people don't have a vestige of the Holy Spirit and can't make right judgments about spiritual things. And spiritual people who, according to verse 6, are the mature who can digest the wisdom of God and rightly assess it. What's missing? Well, what's missing is a huge group of people in between those two that don't fit either category. And Paul talks about them as fleshly. 
That's what the word means translated in the NIV, worldly, or in the uh, RSV, men of the flesh. He has to invent a new word here. He didn't invent it. Choose a new word. Because these Corinthians are not spiritual and they are not natural. Those are the two categories he was working with. And now he comes to the reality here. Let's read verse 1. And he says, But I, brethren, could not address you as spiritual, but as fleshly. That's a literal translation. As babes in Christ. In other words, I've just spoken about mature people up in verse 6. I called them spiritual in verse 15. I contrasted them with uh, natural people. And you're not in either of those categories. You are not spiritual or mature. And you are not natural. You are fleshly. Notice the contrast. Uh, babes in Christ contrasts in verse 1 of chapter 3 with mature in verse 6, right? Mature and babes go together as, as contrasting. And then the contrast between the word fleshly in verse 1 of chapter 3 is with spiritual in verse 15 of chapter 2. Spirit and flesh, spiritual, fleshly, mature and babies. So they're not in the category of mature or spiritual. They are babies and they are fleshly. Now, what should we do with this text this morning? What I would like to ask is, what makes these people tick? What are they like? What is a carnal, that's the old-fashioned word, carnal Christian or a fleshly Christian or a baby in Christ? Who are they? What what are they like? And... Uh, what does God think about them? And uh, am I one of them? Are you one of them? And what should we do if we are? Those are the kind of things I think we should think about, which is why it's hard to read the Bible in a year. I don't know, you know, if you're assigned to read four chapters in First Corinthians, I don't know how you learn anything unless you've got lots of time. Because when I hit a verse like, Verses 1 and 2 here. It takes me at least a half an hour to figure out what is what is going on. Where am I in this verse? Where's God in relationship to me? If you if I'm going to get anything out of these verses, I got to linger and and uh, let it be like a lozenge under my tongue so that the juices of insight seep down and tra- change my heart. Now, I think what you should do is have extensive and intensive reading in your devotional life. You've got to move over some terrain fast, otherwise you don't learn what's in the Bible. But you've got to sink shafts as well. Well, that's a parenthesis. Um, four things I want you to see about the fleshly, fleshly Christian. And the first is this. Paul assumes that they are in Christ. In Christ. I could not address you as spiritual, but as fleshly, as babes, in Christ. Now, what does that little phrase mean? That's a rich and wonderful phrase. That's, that phrase is so full of encouragement for babies in Christ and fleshly people as well as mature people. What does in Christ mean? The best explanation in the vicinity of this verse, I think, is chapter 1, verse 30. If you want to look at it with me. In chapter 1, verse 30, Paul says that God is 
is the one who has put us in Christ. From him you are in Christ, or the RSV says he is the source of your life. That means he's the one who put you there. He's the one who wrapped you up in Christ, unified you to Christ, joined you to Christ, so that now you're in Christ. Now, what does it mean? That's what the last part of the verse is good for. This Christ, God made our wisdom, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, which simply means Christ is for you all that you need to be when you are in him. And that's good news. That's, that's one of the greatest doctrines of the faith. It's called justification sometimes or union with Christ. To be wrapped up so in Christ by being united to him by faith, he becomes for us all that he is for us. All that we need to be in order to be accepted by God, he becomes for us and begins to work within us as we are in him. So the first thing Paul wants to say about fleshly Christians is that they are in Christ as far as he can tell. He assumes that they are in Christ. Second observation, they are fleshly. I could not address you as spiritual, but as, then the literal word would be fleshly. What does that mean? What is the flesh and what is a fleshly Christian? The first thing it means is that a deep spiritual walk with God that all of us are longing for doesn't happen overnight after conversion. That's surely implied here. It doesn't necessarily happen overnight. It might. God sometimes does that sort of thing. But by and large, there's process. Conversion is a little start, and then there's this baby period, and then there's adulthood. And so the first implication of calling these Christians fleshly is that the depth that we want with God doesn't come automatically and quickly right after conversion. Let me try to explain another way what this carnal or fleshly Christian is. And I want to contrast what I have to say with the sketch that is found in that little um, little pamphlet that Campus Crusade uses with the three circles of the natural man and the carnal Christian and spiritual person, the spirit-filled person. Because I want to make a slight adjustment in that uh, conception there. And I don't want to write this little pamphlet off. Many of you have used it. My guess is some of you have been greatly helped by it. And I think God will go right on using it even after I've made my little correction of it this morning. And so please don't take what I'm about to say as implying that there's no place for this or that God can't use it. In fact, when I try to put in the star this week my little three circles and draw an alternative, I'm sure they will also have their flaws. But... I'm going to try to make a correction that I think would make it more biblical. You remember? Some of you have not seen this, so I'll draw it in the air for you here. The first circle is the natural man, the unbeliever, and inside there's a little throne, and on the throne is the I, the ego, the self-reliant John Piper before he was saved, on the throne, and mess, his life is all tangled in there, and sins are all over the place. And Jesus, the cross, is outside the circle. He's not in there yet. Okay? Circle number two is the carnal Christian. That is the Christian described right here. 
And that's a reality that we have to reckon with. It's a biblical teaching. On the throne inside this circle, the carnal Christian is still the I, the old ego, the self-reliant me. And Christ has moved from the outside of the circle to the inside of the circle. And he's one among many other commitments here. And sin is still kind of tangled up in there and life is not in order. And then the third circle is the spiritual Christian or what happens when you make Christ Lord of your life. And now the eyes off the throne, the cross or Christ is on the throne and the pattern of the life is now in order as things radiate out properly from the throne of Christ. Now, the problem I have with that sketch is the middle circle is is not biblical. I don't think, not fully biblical anyway, because I don't think the Bible teaches that you can be a Christian if Jesus is not your Lord. If you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you can be saved, but not any otherwise. Or the jailer, what must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Anyone who says to you, I receive Jesus as Savior and accept all his benefits, I will not follow him as Lord. I do not acknowledge him as Lord. He is not my Lord. You have no warrant for counting that person to be a Christian. And so you say, well, what would you put in this? How do you account for the carnal Christian? What What would your circle look like? Let me let me lay the circle down, first of all, before I draw it. I'm going to lay down flat, and we're going to call it a territory, a land, a country. And in that country, there's a citadel, the heart or the mind. And on the throne or in the president's chair of that citadel and palace, there's John Piper, the old self-reliant me. And I'm not a Christian yet, okay? And I'm ruling over this throne, I think. And out there... The troops, the the forces of the flesh are running rampant. And this is God's territory. He made it. He should have it. Only he's outside and I'm not letting him in and don't want anything to do with him. And so the forces of the flesh just run rampant and there's warfare and sin everywhere. All right. Now, here's Jesus and the Holy Spirit outside. And God the Father says, take it. Okay, now the Holy Spirit is a tank. It's a Sherman tank. And sitting on the back of this tank is Jesus Christ. His legs folded. And, uh, and God the Father says, take it. Now, there is one strategy by which the Holy Spirit takes, takes people. He, he, he starts his engines up and he blasts right through the border guards. Just knocks them haywire. Just knocks them all down. And he heads straight for the citadel. Does whatever he has to to make his way to the citadel. And when he arrives at the citadel, he bashes through the palace door, knocks down all the doors, goes right into the president's office and kills him. Executes him. It's a coup. And he puts his foot on his neck and he says, Jesus, take the throne. Now, we all know about coups, right? What's going on in the palace while this is happening? What's going on in the citadel? What's going on in the outlying areas? It's chaos. Or maybe it's life as usual in some places. They haven't heard what's happening yet. There's sniper fire in the city. 
It may be days before the news reaches the outlying areas. The guerrillas are going to dig in their heels and fight for all they're worth. But Jesus is in the citadel at the president's chair and on the throne. So I'm going to draw tonight, I'm going to draw the second circle. And I'm going to put Jesus on the throne and little John Piper with dagger in his stomach. And I'm going to put the Holy Spirit, H.S., under the throne. And then out here in the circle, I'm going to leave it a mess. It's just a mess. Sin all over the place. Hardly anything's in order yet. Not much has changed. There's this little sliver where the, where the, where the tank just crashed right through. And that's the carnal Christian. Jesus is on the throne or a person is not a Christian. We cannot talk about rejecting Christ as Lord and being his people. The, the third drawing is going to have one or two or three little messy sins cleaned up. Like maybe this guy who just got converted starts spending some time with his kids in the evening. Maybe he quits stealing pencils at work. Maybe he cleans up his mouth a little bit the day after he's converted and kind of grits his teeth and doesn't say hell quite as often because he believes in it now. <laughs> and so just one or two little changes. But you see, I've got to have about 5,000 more circles because that's my view of sanctification. However many days I'm going to live until I get to glory. So the, the slight change is this. Both of us, that little pamphlet that I'm contrasting with and mine, are just trying to get at the same reality. Namely, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. How do you account for carnal Christians? I think it's a very bad model to set up people who get saved by accepting Jesus as Savior and not as Lord. That's stock testimony. Most of you, when you joined this church, said that's what happened in your life. Got saved, except Jesus is my Savior when I was eight. And then I went to camp when I was 15 and discovered he was supposed to be my Lord. And I took him as my Lord. Well, I don't think that's what happened. That's the words you're using. I don't think that's what happened. There are two possibilities that happened. Number one, you weren't a Christian until you went to camp. The other possibility is you were. A Christian, and he was your Lord. He was on the throne, but the cleanup operations among the forces of the flesh were moving quite slowly. And that's a big difference. That's a big difference than saying, he's not my Lord, and I am a Christian. You can't talk like that. Let's cancel it out at Bethlehem, okay? Let's not talk that way anymore. There is another biblical model with which to handle our imperfections. We can say something like this. I received Christ when I was six. This is John Piper talking now. I received Christ when I was six. And I struggled so hard with sins in my youth that I'm so ashamed of. God was very patient for me ruling from the citadel of my life. He tolerated the imperfections and the resistance forces that came from my body and my soul for many years. And only slowly did he exert his sanctifying, massive control over my life. And today yet, there are lingering gorillas 
trying to unseat him from his throne. That's the way you talk about biblical sanctification. You don't unseat the Lord inside the life of a Christian. He's king, he's sovereign, or he's not there. Now let me try to add a verse or two to give additional scriptural support for what I'm saying. Galatians chapter 5 verse 24 says, Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh. That's why John Piper is going to be lying on the ground with a dagger in his tummy. The old man is dead, according to Galatians 5.24, if I belong to Jesus Christ. Somebody died. The flesh died. It got nailed to the cross. It was crucified. But Galatians 5.13, just a few verses earlier, says, For freedom Christ has set you free. Therefore, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. And you kind of back off and say, Ooh, wait a minute. I thought he was dead. What's this don't give opportunity for the flesh if he's dead? And you find that tension all through the New Testament. Already dead, not yet dead. What do you do with it? How do we conceive of this? I conceive of it as the fact that the citadel has been stormed. The rule has been taken. A decisive blow to the rebels has been struck by the rightful owner of the kingdom. And now it will take a lifetime to clean up all the forces of the flesh and the guerrilla warfare that's out there. Or if you want another analogy from World War II, when the atom bomb fell, the war was virtually over. It was settled and everybody knew it. But it took how many months? Before the treaty was signed. And how many years before outlying islands in the South Seas quit shooting at each other. And so there is a sense in which there's been a decisive execution. And there's a sense in which we must fight against the flesh. And so on this point, I ask you to be vigilant in your spiritual warfare. Don't hobnob with the gorillas. Look to the victory of Christ Look to the atomic power of the Holy Spirit. There is great hope in this conception of the Christian life for imperfect people like you and me. I plead with you, rethink the words and the categories with which you interpret your walk with God. I'm not calling into question anybody's experience. I'm only asking you, have you learned words to interpret your experience that don't accord with biblical truth as well as they could? The third observation about the, uh, and these others are much shorter now, so we're, we're almost done. The third observation about the carnal or the fleshly Christian is that they can't eat solid food. They can only drink milk. Verse 2, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it, and even yet you are not ready. Now, What is milk and what is solid food and what is the organ by which solid food is digested, which the Corinthians don't have? Those are the three questions I've got. Verse 3, I think, answers all of them, or at least to me was the seed of the answer to all of them. It goes like this. You are still of the flesh, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh? Now, what that verse did for me was to give me the... The nature of fleshiness. 
You put it in practical terms. Nobody wants, nobody knows what the word flesh means. What's that mean? Skin? What are you talking about? Flesh. Well, now we know what it means. It means jealousy and strife. And what's underneath jealousy and strife? Pride and self-assertion and self-reliance and self-exaltation. Things that say, I belong to Paul. You don't. I belong to Apollos and you've only got Paul. Apollos is a lot more eloquent than Paul or Paul was the first one here and he baptized me and he's the real apostle. That's the flesh talking. Jealousy, pride, strife, dissension, boasting. So, what is milk? What is solid food? And what's the organ by which that solid food is digested? I would say... Pride is what keeps people from eating solid food without choking. Or to put it positively, the organ of digestion for solid food is humility. And until there is sufficient brokenness, self-renunciation and humility, solid food will gag and choke and even kill, as you could kill a little baby by forcing down the wrong food. Let's define solid food and milk then. Here's the way I would define milk. Milk is teaching that is uniquely designed by God to get a proud sinner started on the path of humility and hope. Teaching designed to get people started on the path of humility and hope. Let me describe it for you here. Here's, here's an unbeliever whose esophagus is as rigid and as tight as it can be. And obviously no big foods going down this esophagus. It's just, that's pride, self-reliance. I'm not going to bow down before a crucified, bloody Savior as though I needed somebody to die for me. We think I am. That's the unbeliever, whether he says those words or not. Well, how do you ever get into that person? If you go back and read chapter 1, Paul tells us what his milk was. It's the word of the cross. The word of the cross is not something that cottons with pride, but it is tailored to make its way through that esophagus so that Down here, once it gets in, it can start giving off the juices of humility and hope so that the esophagus begins to become a little more pliable and open to more food. And what is it about the word of the cross that enables it to? I think it's just the good news. Sinners, by the grace of the Holy Spirit, know they need a cross. The cross is the most precious news in all the world. A crucified Lord of glory covering all my sins. That can slip down by the grace of God. And inside then, the implications of this and all it would mean in my life begin to loosen up so that I can swallow more of the implications of the truth. Well, if that's milk, if the word of the cross that Paul began with at Corinth is the milk that can get a person started on the road to hope and humility... What is solid food? I think the most important thing to notice about solid food is that it's not something that takes superior intellect to grasp. I think we get off base here. We got milk for, and then we tend to think in intellectual terms, simple people. And then a solid food for intellectual types who, you know, like to talk about theology. 
That's not the way the Bible talks about it. The Bible talks in moral terms, not intellectual terms. The Bible says the big obstacle to uh, swallowing solid food is pride, not stupidity or not inferior intellect. What is needed is humility, not intellect. That's the big obstacle because jealousy and strife are the mark of the flesh and the babe and the narrow gullet. Well, what is the solid food practically then? Let me suggest what very concretely I think it would be. Notice verse 10 of chapter 2. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. See that little phrase, depths of God? That sounds like solid food, is it? Well, he's describing the wisdom that he teaches here. And it says in verse 6, you see verse 6 of chapter 2, I impart a wisdom... Among the mature. Now, that's the opposite of the babes who can't eat solid food. So I assume that the wisdom that will go down in the in the mature is solid food. And it's the wisdom or the depths of God in verse 10. Now, what is that? There's one other place in Paul's writings where the wisdom of God and the depths of God are put together. You know Romans 11:33 Oh the depth of the wisdom of God Now if you were to ask me then give me a concrete specific biblical example of solid food I would say Romans 9:10 and 11 That section of Romans is doctrinal solid food which is extolled as the depth and the wisdom of God at the end. And we all know what's in there. It's heavy things about election and predestination and the effectual call of God and the hardening of Israel and the ingathering of the elect. These are doctrines that do not go down a gullet that is full of jealousy, pride, self-reliance, self-exaltation, and especially self-determination. Something massive must happen in the throat of a person before they will swallow Romans 9. Now, as I thought about this, I thought to myself, well, wait a minute. Just a few weeks ago when I preached on 1 Corinthians 1, I talked about election. Because it's there. Not many of you were wise. God chose what is the foolish in this world. God chose the despised. God chose this. Is it milk or is it solid food? And this is the analogy I came up with to try to help me and maybe you get a handle on this. I think that if you want to feed solid food to babies, you have to put it in a blender And then mix it up with milk. And I think that's exactly what Paul's doing in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2. It's all there. It's all there. The nutritionist can recognize it. It's all there. But it's in diluted form or pablum form. Now, I hope this doesn't sound like 
he has in any way injured the doctrines. Charles Spurgeon preached to 4,000 people every Sunday for 30 years, and I don't think there ever has been a man who did better what Paul did here, namely took the large chunks of Romans 9, put them in the blender of his mind, and stirred them in with the milk of the gospel and fed them to thousands every Sunday. So that it, in a sense, was solid food, but in a sense it was not. It was mingled with the milk of the gospel, and in a sense it was solid food. I think that's what I've tried to do in my own stumbling echo of Paul's message, and that's what we should try to do for each other. Well, let me close with the last point here. The fourth observation about these fleshly Christians is that they are not growing, and this is very dangerous. They are not growing, and Paul is very upset about it. I want you to see the ominous change of tense in verse 2. From the past to the present. Listen as I read and interpret the tense for you, starting at verse 1. I was not able to address you as spiritual, past tense. I fed you with milk, past tense. You were not ready, past tense. And then comes the terrible shift. It wasn't so bad that they were babies then. They were brand new Christians. But now he says, and even yet you are not ready. You are still fleshly. And then listen to how the words become increasingly ominous and and warning in verses 3 and 4. And are you not walking according to man? And when someone says, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, are you not merely men? What does that mean? What word would you take from chapter 2? to define mere men. Natural man, verse 14. You see what he's saying? He's saying, could it be that the reason you got such a good start and then seem to have made no progress is that you don't have the spirit at all? You're just a natural man. Now, Paul won't say it, will he? He doesn't say that. I don't think he believes it. He hopes for the best in them. He just raises the question, is it the case that you are just men after all? And so my closing admonition is first, Don't drift in your Christian life. Don't act as though immaturity were unimportant. Picture yourself in a stream of the flesh and the world and the devil, and you are swimming as the stream is flowing the other way. And there are falls behind you, and they make a loud noise. And if you stop swimming and fold your arms and float in this water, dead in the water, You go only one direction, and that's backward. The evidence of being eternally secure in Christ is not that you have made it to the headwaters and gone over the continental divide so that now you flow easily in the Spirit to heaven. That's not the evidence of being in Christ and be eternally secure. 
The evidence of being in Christ and being eternally secure is that you are swimming and not floating. And the second admonition I have is let's hope for the best in each other. We're so quick to judge, aren't we? Uh, that person couldn't be a Christian the way they act. Let's hope for the best in, in each other, that God's best is going to be one day worked in each other. There is such a thing as a carnal, baby, fleshly Christian. Third admonition, let's warn each other lovingly, just like Paul does here. Let's raise for people with tears the possibility that if they press on in their indifference to their moral life, they might make shipwreck of faith and prove that they never were born of God and that they have never proven their calling and election. And finally, I hope that those of you who are not Christians here are sort of on the outside this morning looking in and listening and watching and wondering what it might mean to give your life to Christ and to see him come straight to the citadel and unseat you and put himself on the throne. I hope that you will hear what I'm saying this morning as hope. At least as as I take myself back and try to imagine what it would be like to get converted all over again and to give my life once for all to Jesus Christ and to welcome him onto the throne of my life, I think I would be greatly encouraged if somebody told me it's going to be a long haul to get changed. I think I'd be encouraged by that. I hope you are. In fact, let me close with this encouraging word that Matthew said about Jesus. He will not break a bruised reed or quench a smoldering wick until he brings justice to victory and the nations will hope in him. Let's stand and pray together.